like to start off by asking who are you and what is your story what is my story wow that's an interesting question so my name is wes miller i teach at babson college i was actually uh, privileged enough to teach Shashwat this past semester in my dystopian literature class. I also teach a literature of guilt class. Both of those are intermediate humanities classes. Uh, and then I also teach first year writing classes. Um, I'm also a fiction writer. And, and so one of the, the many benefits to being a professor is the four months of summer, which um, that job allows me to kind of work on my other job. So I've kind of in the last couple of weeks started in on, on what I consider kind of my work. Um, and it's taken me a long time to get to this point professionally, but it's, it's kind of where I'm, I don't wanna say it's where I'm supposed to be because I'm not sure I believe in that concept, but it's certainly where I like to be. Hmm, interesting. So, Professor, I'm curious to know what do you actually write about? Uh, I know you've spoken about fiction writing and how you write a lot, but uh, I've never actually seen your writing or I'm not sure what you write about. So I'm curious to know about it. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's interesting, Shashwat, especially with our background and our interactions. Uh, I don't write dystopian stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I write... Um, that said, I write, and it won't surprise you to learn that this from both the class and our conversations that we've had. I, I wrote, I write generally pretty dark stuff, and and it's it's generally, uh, I mean, it, it kind of fits within this subgenre of family drama, or family saga, but but there are frequently family sagas or family dramas that deal in large part with issues of guilt. Um, so so I've found that that kind of what fascinates me in terms of what I write about and what I'm interested in are familial relationships. Um, how guilt operates uh, both, you know, because I do think it has value, right? I, I think guilt helps us grieve. Guilt helps us become better people in some ways. Uh, guilt has benefits, but it can also be a huge handicap. It can paralyze us. It can uh, make us think negatively when that's not necessary. Um, and, and so that kind of double-edged nature of it, it I, I, I seem to keep coming back to. Hmm, that's very interesting. I did not know about that. So what is it about guilt that interested you to writing about it um, in terms of also your story? I'm sure there must have been certain things that happened to you or certain emotions you felt that made you passionate about, or well, I'm assuming you're passionate about this, but uh, if you are, then what makes you passionate about this whole genre of guilt and uh, how it's a sort of double-edged sword? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I, I saw that, Josh White, we were talking before we started recording about kind of the questionnaire you provided. And, and, and when I think of what I'm passionate about, it's not about guilt and it's certainly not about dystopia. Um, you know, my answer to that question is a very different answer, which we can get to maybe in a couple minutes. Um, but why I'm drawn to writing about guilt, it just seems to me, certainly I, I hope for most of us, for many of us, the prevalent emotion we feel in family is love and security and comfort and support. Um, but I think even in the most healthy of families, there's still guilt and, and there's still, you know, guilt for how one treats one's children, guilt 
for how one treats one's parents, guilt for how one treats one's siblings. Um, and it's almost impossible to escape. And, and I think I'm, I'm less interested in the concept as a concept of what guilt means uh, as kind of the repercussions of guilt, what, what guilt results in. Um, how does it make, it make us act? How does it make us feel? Um, how does that affect those relationships? I, I think that's, that's often what I delve into and, and, and what I'm most interested in when I write about these worlds. Um, but, but in terms of the passion question, you know, to me, you know, what I think is important, and, and I think it came out a little bit in our class, but, but what I seem to be passionate about is justice, it's fairness. Um, and, and so I think often dystopian, and we've talked about this, dystopian novels, movies, stories, hyperbolize injustice, hyperbolize otherness, hyperbolize those who are mistreated um, to the benefit of the few. Uh, and I think that's kind of where my more my fascination, if it's not a passion for my fascination about dystopia comes from is, is this kind of kernel of, but I'd like this world to be more just, I'd like this world to be more fair. Um, and, you know, I, I think I tried to, and we've talked about this before, non-podcast wise, but you know, my, my first career was as an attorney. And, and I think my thinking there was, you know, can I access justice there? And it didn't satisfy me. It's not what I wanted to do. I, I kind of followed the wrong path uh, in terms of getting into that career. Um, and, and I feel like, again, where I am now, A is where I enjoy being. Uh, and, and B, I, I still think there is an ability to give back. There's there's kind of this benefit of educating and, and interacting with younger students, um, which both energizes me and, and kind of gives me a purpose in a way. Um, but that also sounds very selfish because I will fully admit that I learn a great deal, especially from teaching these intermediate classes, just from the different perspectives of my students, how they react to texts in ways that I would never react to those texts. That gives me a broader understanding of, of the issues that we're discussing. So um, I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer to your question, but I guess that's where I, that's where I roamed. So you spoke about how you write about guilt, but what you're really passionate about is um, fairness and justice, which I find quite fascinating. I, it makes sense in retrospect that you uh, were, you, your first career was that of a, uh, in, in the space of law and attorney, but you decided to now start teaching students. But what fascinates me or what I'm kind of intrigued about is the fact that you're passionate about justice and fairness but you teach more, or at least in our class of utopias and dystopias, we spoke more about dystopias than utopias. And so I'm curious to know, so you said, you also said you write a lot about dark writing or dark themes or genres. So given that you're interested in justice and fairness and sort of that implies to me bringing about a better world, why is it that you presented to us so many dystopian narratives and dystopian novels? Yeah, so I'm going to kind of get at that question, Chashwad, kind of backwards, uh, and, and that's kind of, first I'm going to talk about the, what I write about being dark, and then I'll get I'll try to get into this question of why I talk about unfairness when you're interested in fairness and justice. Um, and I, I may have told you this story before, so I, I, your listeners haven't heard it before, but you you may have. Um, I was at a writers' conference, and and a student in the audience asked a pretty distinguished writer who I won't name, um, why don't good literary novels have happy endings? Why, why does everything have to be dark? Why do we have to explore the ugly part of human nature when we read fiction? 
Um, and the author's response was, are you eight years old? Um, do you want fairy tales? Like, is, is that, do you want to, because I can tell you a story that's happily ever after, but that's not reality. That's not what we're interested in. That's not what we find fascinating. Uh, and, and so I think in terms of why do I write about that, which is dark, I think if I wrote about, you know, I, and I don't, I don't want to talk bad about romance novels, but I don't want to write romance novels, right? I don't want to write, they met, they had these difficulties, they ended up together, yay. Like that, there's a place for that. And, and I can see how that would be enjoyable. It doesn't interest me. And, and it's, it's not an investigation of human nature that I want to do in my writing and in my thinking. Uh, and, and so to your question specifically about why I teach dystopia, if I'm interested in fairness, I think in order to investigate fairness, we almost have an obligation to investigate unfairness. That, that how is, why is this fairness not occurring more often? What are some of the effects? What are the impacts? What are the forces that are creating these inequalities, these unjust situations? Um, hopefully so that we can prepare in our lives and our worlds and our societies to combat those. And, and we're never gonna, I shouldn't say never, we're gonna have a really difficult time eradicating those, but can we lessen them? Can, can, we, can we make the society if not purely just, more just. And, and, and hopefully that's what some of your classmates came away with from that class is, you know, A, a recognition of, okay, maybe especially the United States is not as perfect and, you know, wonderful mm -hmm. as, as I thought it was, or maybe there are these dark spots on it or warts that, that it has, but what, what can I be conscious of to kind of make it better? How can I contribute to making not just this country, but this world, this society, our kind of global population more friendly, more equitable, more fair. Um, I, I just, I, I think that's a fundamentally important aspect of our culture that frankly, and I know we've talked about this in class too, I think Eastern cultures often are more tuned into than Western cultures that, that almost naturally when you're focused more on the individual, um, there is a temptation more so for selfishness. When you're focused on the community, there is more of a focus on, you know, kind of a sharing or, or a kind of shared obligation. Um, and in that second realm, uh, I think it's easier to kind of, it's easier for justice to come to the fore rather than in the former world of individuality where, you know, in, in many ways, I think there are, are people in the United States who think what is just is what's best for me. And it, 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 there's nothing communal about it. And maybe that's a little broader, right? Maybe it's what's best for my family, but, it, but it's, it's not going to be what's best for my town or my state or my party or, or whatever, or my religious group. That's, that's not as often, I think, the concern. And I, and I do think while there are benefits, and I'm, I'm certainly, please don't get me wrong, I wouldn't want to live in another country. I'm very happy to be a United States citizen. I'm proud to be an American. I don't think it's perfect. And I think it needs work. And I think those who you know, wear rose-colored glasses and think, why would you criticize the United States? I, I just, I don't understand that, I guess. That's very interesting, Professor. So, so what I'm hearing is it's the reason why you teach dystopias, despite the fact that you're interested in justice and fairness and trying to bring about a better world, is because oftentimes, uh, at least in the context of the United States, as I heard it, um, it's portrayed to be this sort of um, somewhat of a utopia of, a, of the greatest country in the world or this perfect world. And oftentimes people may wear these glasses or this illusion that, oh, everything's perfect. Well, what's wrong? And this sort of individuality 
that it, it kind of fosters may bring about that sort of thinking of just being concerned with the self and not realizing that the nature of reality is ultimately um, sort of dark in a way or things are always dissipating, things are always getting destroyed things are entropy is real right the universe is not a place that's gonna that really cares about us or cares about our wonderful stories that are romantic and so somewhere you believe that um showing the dark side of the human nature or of the of the universe is important to is an important step to bringing about a better world because if we are kind of siloed into our own realm uh, without seeing the truth of what things are actually like if we uh, in our own privileged bubbles we are like oh yeah everything is happy everything is good nothing needs to change you know we live in a perfect world then um, that actually leads to perhaps more of a dystopia in a sense where the people on top or privileged people who can be in that sort of bubble uh, get to stay in that bubble and the rest sort of suffer as we saw in a lot of dystopian novels that we read and, and saw. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, of and, if, and if I can just add to that, Chesh, like one of the things I think you're talking about when you're in that bubble, that produces stasis, right? That, that you're not challenging yourself. You're not considering other points of view. Um, to draw the analogy of politics, right? If you're a conservative thinker and you only listen to Fox News, you're not getting, you're not challenging your thinking. And, and similarly, if you're a liberal Democrat and you only watch CSNBC, you're not giving yourself the ability to understand what the other side is talking about. And, and so in order to kind of talk about, I would argue any issue that you need, you need a kind of a more complete understanding of what are the different viewpoints and arguments and rationales coming at the issue. The other thing I just I just wanted to bring up because I, I thought it was interesting you use this word and you know th this idea of destruction right that that nature destroys and yet and then maybe this is where I've got my little dystopian hope part of me that that is always there because as soon as you said that I was kind of thinking yeah but you can't destroy matter like it's not destroyed it's repurposed right <laughs> it, it 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 erodes and it decays but then it comes back as something else so there is this kind of continuity and circularity that is is not actually a destruction right is not a annihilation but it is just kind of you know again kind of a repurposing which i i, I that that's a more comforting way i guess for me to think about it well that's very interesting professor so i'm reading this book now called flow by mihai and mihai and in that book in this chapter called escaping chaos he talks about the power of dissipative structures and what he essentially says is that Everything is breaking down in reality. Everything is somewhat of a dissipative structure. But at the same time, the beauty in nature and reality is that everything is somewhat of a conservative or conservational structure as well. So if you think about us, you think about the animal kingdom, plants, everything, we are taking the sunlight, sun's energy, which is essentially waste matter that sun is giving out. It's a dissipative sort of thing. We are taking it, we're conserving it, and we're turning it into something else. We're creating more energy. So in, in some way, uh, dissipative structures can be transformed into order. It can be transformed into uh, something better, right? So waste does not actually need to be seen as waste, but 
this sort of transformation from waste or chaos to, to order or, or betterment or from dystopia to utopia. And it's something that we discussed a lot in class as well, that yeah, we are thinking about dystopias and all these dystopian novels, but I remember you specifically saying that, look out for the rays of hope that come within these dystopias. And I remember clearly seeing it in a lot of dystopias where there was something to look forward to, that hope was that thing that, that kept uh, people going. And uh, perhaps I think those dystopian narratives when consumed by a user or, or a viewer can inspire or evoke an emotion on one level that, okay, I would like to do something to make sure this doesn't happen. I don't want to fall into that trap or I'd like to do something to, to change this, right? I think that inspiration can evoke from dystopias, even though sometimes it can be demotivating and, oh my God, what is happening? So this idea of dissipative structures yet being able to find order and regeneration of life within this chaos is something that um, I'm actually quite fascinated by. And in terms of Shashwat learning from these texts, like just kind of to use two that we were used in class, I, I would hope that a young man, not you, but a, you know, a young 20 year old man reading Handmaid's Tale might rethink some of his views of women. That a young entrepreneur, man or woman, seeing um, the wife of the doctor act in blindness that might affect their views of leadership and servant leadership. And what does it mean? What, are the, what is the weight of leadership? What do I need to keep in mind to be an effective leader? That, that, I, that I do think there are lessons to be learned way beyond right the dystopian framework of the class. Um, and whether those are explicitly learned or they're just kind of in subconscious and maybe you know come to light five years later, I, I will say from teaching, some of the most rewarding emails I've ever gotten are from students who are four years, five years, 10 years past graduation and, and tell me things like, I still think about that Black Mirror episode, or I still think about that conversation we had in class about cannibalism or whatever it is, um, that it had an impact and it affected them. Like That to me is one of the real rewards of, of the occupation. Yeah, I mean, as you said it, I sort of got chills remembering those conversations about cannibalism and all these dystopian conversations we had. Uh, but I believe the reward that you spoke about or the fact that students remembered it 10 years down the line, five years down the line, it's because I believe or I've read that emotions are the gateway to learning. And if we have sort of emotional experiences that kind of violate our expectations, then that is a true experience. Aldous Huxley once said, an experience that does not violate expectation is not an experience. And so this idea of emotions being the gateway to learning and kind of violating the expectations of students and giving them like this, whoa, I didn't see that coming, I think is such a great tool. And yeah, I would like to thank you for that for doing that and throwing these interesting ideas and sort of almost, um, I mean, uncanny ideas that people don't think about, or it's like uh, unpopular topics that, oh, this is like ugly stuff. Why would we talk about this, right? Let's just talk about the good stuff or let's talk about making more money. And no one thinks about the ugliness of society or things that get really dark and you know, we, we tend to run away from it. So I'd like to thank you for presenting those ideas in a safe manner um, and, and to be able to have that impact on students. Now, that being said, Professor, you brought up this idea of the other that I'd like to speak more about and how you said that 
it's important for people to see the other side, right? Like if a person is watching only Fox News, if a conservative is only watching Fox News or a liberal is watching only CNBC or whatever, it limits their thinking. And one of our, the goals of this podcast um, is to, to sort of find the others. That's, that's the, the punchline, is to find the others. And the idea is to create a transdisciplinary community where we're challenging each other's views and trying to go on the other side and bringing diversity of thought within this. So I'm curious to hear from you, what does the other mean to you? And then also in the context of the utopias and dystopias uh, that we've discussed. So what does the other mean to me? I, the other, you know, me, and maybe this kind of gets back to one of your initial questions. Maybe the other is, is kind of a constant guilt I feel that, that, you know, I, as you said, I live a fairly privileged existence. I am, I'm at my family's cabin by a lake in Maine where I write for the summer. Um, I make a decent living and I don't have to work 12 months a year, at least at income producing work. I hope at some point my writing produces income, but you know, in some ways that is art that who knows if that I'll ever earn a penny from that. Um, I grew up in a very kind of upper middle class family and had everything I needed and a lot of the things I wanted. Um, and so to me, the challenge of the other is often that which I don't see um, that which I don't experience, as you said, from children of men, that which I don't think about, that which I take for granted. Uh, and I think striving to keep that in mind, um, having that affect decisions in the day to day, both small and large. Um, I, I think that's the significance of the other to me and the importance of the other to me. I, I think, especially with, with what's going on in the States, you know, in the last couple of years in terms of racial injustice uh, and, and kind of that coming to Jesus moment of, of forcing white America in many ways to appreciate more than it has in the past, what it is like to be non-white in America, whether you're talking about trying to be a CEO of a company or getting pulled over in a traffic stop or whatever it is, those rules are different. And, and much of, in my opinion, including myself, the white population doesn't think about that. Uh, and so that in some ways becomes an othering, uh, a kind of sweeping under the rug, uh, not having to think about or deal with, um, which we should all do more of. And, and, you know, we talked about this in class a little bit too. The problem is, right, if, if you obsess on that, if that's all you think about, um, wh where's the productivity of your life going to be? Are you just going to sit in a hole and feel guilty about your privilege the whole time? Are you going to do anything? Um, you know, what's going to motivate you? It's very tough to be motivated by feeling depressed and guilty. So, so how do you, how do you bring energy? How do you, how do you provide change? How do you find satisfaction from the change you provide? Um, one of the things I struggle with, Shashwad, as, as an instructor, as a teacher is, I do think I, I affect students teaching or I'm sorry, they're learning. I, I, I think I affect the way some students think about certain issues. Um, and then the question for me is, do I do it enough? Do I, how much uh, is what I do? Am I maximizing the impact I can have? Um, am I on the one hand being fair and, and inclusive in that, that, that I don't want a student coming to my class to think, oh man, if I, if I don't like Donald Trump, then Miller's not going to like me. Or if I don't like Barack Obama, my, my student, my Miller's not going to like me. Like I, I do want it to be accessible to as many as possible, but, but I also, I want to have impact. And if 
some of our conversations, some of the texts we use seem repetitive or boring or don't open new doors or, or you know, just kind of don't take students to an interesting place in terms of their thought. Am I doing my job as well as I could? And, and, I, and I think that becomes part of the challenge. So the second part of your question, I, I do think the other is prominent in, in dystopian literature, mostly because of that notion that I think a lot of dystopian authors subscribe to, which is a non-belief in a rising tide raises all boats, right? That, that we want to live in a world that is not a zero-sum world, but there are aspects of that world when it is imperfect that are going to be zero sum that that if if your country has you know produces 70% of the world's world's population right that that means other countries are suffer a suffering from that population and b not benefiting from the manufacturing that you're benefiting from by producing that population and so 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 i think that that notion of keeping in mind that dystopias often exist to benefit a very small fraction of a population that then takes on as a, as a part of its job, forgetting about that privilege, right? Not thinking about those who are not benefiting from this dystopia. Um, I, I think that's why it seems to be so prominent and prevalent in dystopian literature generally. Interesting. So I want to speak more about this idea of the zero-sum game that you brought upon. And what I'm hearing is that you're saying, uh, as we saw in a lot of these dystopian narratives, um, that there is there seems to be a zero-sum game. There seems to be a price that one must pay for a certain group's utopia, a certain group on the top that lives very luxuriously in this sort of utopian world, there is a trade-off, there is a sacrifice um, which creates the zero-sum game. And I specifically remember, um, I think it was Omel the ones who walked away from Omelas, that text, uh, I remember very vividly thinking about this concept where um, they had this perfect sort of utopia that the author describes, you know, you want to throw in an orgy there, go ahead and do that, whatever you want. But remember, at the end of the day, there's this dark room with a baby that is going through really bad stuff, really depressing, dark stuff. And um, that sort of created this like trade-off. Now, I, will you, and everyone knows that baby, that, that, that the fact that that baby exists and um, is suffering and it, are people, so the people, I guess, had two choices. Am I willing to live with the fact that my happiness depends on someone else's sadness or my utopia depends on someone else's dystopia or the other choice is to walk away from Omelas, to walk away from that utopia. But I would challenge that belief, Professor, even though I see that the somewhat we are conditioned to live in a zero-sum kind of economy or play, we've always played zero-sum games where I win, you lose, or you win, I lose. You know, those are the games that we've played since kids. I believe that we can actually create positive-sum games. We can actually create a system, uh, a, a utopia of some sort where there are more positive some games for everyone. And that being said, I, um, I know I sound like an idealist, uh, but I realize that there is a trade-off to every action on a physical level. But that being said, I still believe that that um, trade-off does not have to be like, I go, let's say I'm the person who suffers, I'm the loser, uh, I must bear the entire cost and that uh, you must take 
like you must win. I think we both can share somewhat of the cost and we both can share somewhat of the benefits. And so in that sense, we can create this sort of positive sum games for everyone. I'm not sure what your take is on this, but I'd be curious to hear uh, what you think on this whole idea of a zero sum games versus positive sum games. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with much of what you said. And I think positive sum great gains in many platforms and instances are noble and just and um, desirable goals. Like, I do think that's what we should be shooting for. The only, it was funny because you were talking about it. And I was like, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. And then you said for everyone. And that's when I was like, no, that's when you lost me. Because, and then one of your classmates said this in class and she said it better than I ever could. People don't want to give up their own privilege. So if, if you were starting a society, right, from tabula, tabula rasa, like it's blank slate, everybody's even, absolutely. Like I think positive, some, you could definitely do it. The problem is you've got a society where you have the haves and you've got to encourage the haves to give up some of their haveness in order to create this baseline so that everybody has equal opportunity and it's merit-based and you can do I don't see those people giving it up. And, and some of them will. I'm not saying none of them will. But, but I, I just think financial and, you know, security and the way things have operated through time, those are powerful forces. And, and I don't know how you, I don't know how you tell someone who is in the top 1%, for example, in the United States, you need to give up that status for the betterment of society. And for a, a majority of those people to say, okay, I'll do that. Like, I, I just don't know how that works. Yeah, I see what you're saying. You're completely right. So, uh, I mean, what would be your solution to this? I mean, then does that mean we live in this kind of dystopian, like, oh, we're never going to get to a better world. These people on top are going to always keep the power on top and uh, we're never going to be able to sort of bring about a more just system or a more just world is that the narrative we should be living with then? No, no, I don't think so. And then Shashwat, I, I, I do think there, there are two ways I can respond to that. One is that, that I do kind of admire the work that you and some of your peers are doing, kind of exploring these ideas, both in a kind of purely economic and job-based kind of platform, but also in a, in a more kind of holistic health-based system. Um, and, and I do think, you know, maybe there could be opportunities to kind of break off and, and kind of create these bubbles and, and these kind of test tubes and see how it works. And, and, and maybe that's the opportunity. Um, and, and I would wish you well in that. And, and I would wish you the very best. Um, I, I'm too old. Like I would not take part in that. That said, what you were just saying, you know, I guess I've gotten to this point and maybe this is cynicism of my goal is not to kind of change it so that it's this. My goal is to make it better. So, so if there are, to your point, to your examples, if we can promote more, not all, but more positive sum gains in our jobs, in our relationships, in our society, in the games we play, that's, that's what I want to do. Like, I, I, want, I want to make those incremental steps. I want to make the, I'm not, you know, the other example, we've talked about this in class too. I'm not going to sol solve world hunger. Like, it doesn't matter how many quarters I put in that UNICEF box. Like, I'm not going to fix it. But I can, I can bat, you know, I can put some quarters in and, and that's going to provide some help. I can volunteer at my local food bank and, and kind of help my community deal with this issue of hunger, which, you know, with very few exceptions is present throughout the United States. Um, and so 
I guess my focus is, is, and again, this may be because I'm 51 years old, right? My focus is less on change, radical change, and more on let's improve what we've got. Let, let's make it better, um, which may go to, you know, and I know we had exchanged some emails about this concept of, you know, the, the, the danger of being too idealistic when one is young and being too pessimistic when one is old. Um, and that's kind of a parallel to, and you may have heard this before in the political sphere that, you know, there are some who say, you know, the healthy, intelligent person is a liberal Democrat in his or her 20s and a conservative Republican in his or her 60s. Like that's that's just kind of the nature of thinking that it should evolve. And if, you know, in some ways, if you're a 60 year old hippie Democrat, it's kind of like, mm. and if you're a 20 year old college Republican, it's kind of like, mm. like there, there is this kind of natural conservatism that happens as one ages, which I do think it's interesting to think about, you know, in terms of our conversation, I don't know that as you age, that necessarily means you have to become more cynical. I don't think it has to have that connotation. I do think there is this natural pull toward being more cautious, being more conservative, having more to lose, having children, having a family, having a mortgage, that that there are obligations that those obligations saddle you with that, that kind of almost enforce more conservative thinking, which I, I don't know. I, I do think we can fight against that. And I think there's value to fighting against that. I, I also think there's value to having, having some conservative principles when you're in your 20s and having some liberal principles when you're in your 60s. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And, and in fact, I think it's really valuable. But I also understand or I, I believe there is this natural inclination to be more idealistic. Um, I'm going to change the world's progressive when you're younger and and much more yeah i'm pretty comfortable i'll make some little changes but let's not talk about big changes when you're older interesting yeah i find that fascinating and it seems like the reason is uh, that young people have more to look forward to there's more of a life there's more energy so and we see the world in a completely different way right because we're a whole new generation that's seeing okay this is the state and this is what it is but this is what it could be and so there's this kind of energy that comes into and this sort of idealism that happens um to, to bring about change. And as you grow older, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to die sooner. So I might as well just enjoy. I don't want to think about change. Like things are good. I'm just going to accept what is rather than what could be um, because I've seen such a long life and yeah, maybe things are not so easy. So I'm just going to be comfortable where I am and, and sort of uh, just relax and not think too much about change and energy. And, like, I mean, optimism and whatnot. But again, I think there's dangers to that, right? like the quote you sent shared with me um, that a young person being too idealistic or an old person being too pessimistic can be an issue and ultimately I think it comes down to a balance because if uh, I like to think about optimism and pessimism uh, as a metaphor of a car right I, I was watching this talk by Kevin Kelly and he said if a car was what we are right how we move then uh, pessimism is the break that kind of slows it down and optimism is the accelerator that pushes it forward and we can't have a car with either one or the other you can't have a car just with the accelerator and no brake that car is bound to crash too quick and we can't have a car with just a brake and no accelerator the car won't move so we need to have both and i guess that's why i mean nature creates this sort of aging thing and this sort of um 
system or not not just system as in like the spectrum of psychological beliefs of conservatism versus um this radical change in uh, liberalism i don't know if that's the actual thing but wanting to change and you know disrupt society kind of the dissipated structures versus the conservative nature on the other side which is just wanting to conserve and not change and you know slow things down uh, and one without the other doesn't seem possible so i guess the answers to to have both at the same time and, so, and yet the other problem shashwa that you bring up which which is really interesting in terms of this conservative conservatism versus progressivism right is you've got these older pop portion of society right which has capital which has security but is also used to doing things the old way right and, and so as you were saying young people can see right what is the internet going to enable us to do what are social media platforms going to enable us to do and i'm sure there are venture capitalists in silicon valley who are 60 years old saying oh i know what social media is going to result in they don't know like they can know uh and, and so the problem is they're the ones with the economic power so how do we kind of harness the knowledge and wisdom that the younger generations have because they more accurately can see the future, can see what's going to be coming versus these older generations that, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, are stuck in old modalities that work for them but don't work any longer. Um, and so, or aren't going to work for much longer. Um, and, and I don't know how you conquer that because, again, those older folks. They got the privilege. How are you going to give them? How are you going to get them to give up that privilege? How are you going to get them to give up that financial power, that you know, executive power, that control of company vision? I know, and I'm sure you know much more about this than I do. I, I've certainly read entrepreneurs and, and innovators kind of saying that you kind of have to constantly disrupt. Like that's how you do it, um, and that makes sense to me. But I, I have a hard time seeing, you know, 55 year olds disrupting or, or disrupting productively. Like, I almost feel like it's disruption plus it's disruption plus a younger mindset, the ability to see what's going to happen in the future with fresh eyes versus, you know, you were around in the eighties and, and you think this is the way to make money. Yeah. That was the way in the eighties, but have you thought about crypto? Like, have you thought about these options that are available now? Probably not. So. Yeah, that's very interesting, Professor. So I was about to say, actually, the solution to disrupting the forces of power on top, uh, these older folks that don't want to give up their privilege and their power is ultimately disruption and technological disruption uh, to, to sort of disrupt the fabric of society, the way the norm is disrupting the status quo that was built. Um, and I think it is already happening. I mean, even though, I mean, a simple example like COVID right now, it's not a technology that disrupted in a positive way, but it could. And I think it has disrupted regardless of age, gender, sex, uh, I mean, sorry, same thing, age, gender, uh, religion, uh, you know, race, nothing matters. It's a virus that can infect anyone. So whether you're on top of like, you know, you're a witch, white, rich male on top of the hierarchy or someone um, who's on the bottom, it doesn't matter. Okay, maybe the person on top is not as likely to be uh, affected by it, but it, the person can still be affected by it. So I believe technological uh, disruptions or just forces of nature. And I mean, this whole idea of even separating technology from nature, a whole other topic, I don't see it as separate. I, Kevin Kelly actually speaks about how technology is the seventh kingdom of nature. 
it's come from matter right so how do you say it's not nature it's unnatural i think it's the same thing as and and nature disrupts and tries to bring back that homeostasis i also want to connect it to this idea you mentioned of younger folks kind of disrupting and and you know giving this fresh set of eyes to the older folks and bringing it back to the idea of the other um, I actually read this paper for my ethics class on love and epistemology or, or the role of love in epistemology and this feminist take on epistemology. And it spoke about how the other, in the case of this paper, females are often suppressed and are often othered, right, to have certain ways of looking at the world or, or dealing with reality uh, and are dismissed. But she actually argues that the other actually, or in this case, females actually have um, a sort of advantage, uh, an epistemological advantage to be able to know more of what's about to happen, that often uh, the Western rational thinking of black and white thinking doesn't often see. And we often see this in, uh, you know, a lot of dystopian narratives where things like groupthink and, you know, everyone thinking in the exact same way in this black and white sort of results in this extreme dystopia but if we could bring about this sort of um, the other into the picture, so in this case, feminist epistemology of feminism into the picture, because they see things that the, the majority or the status quo don't see, then uh, we can bring about a shift in the way our knowledge systems work, our, our you know, social systems work, our economic systems work, our political systems work, if we are willing to bring about the shift from this Western or uh, positivist black and white thinking uh, that adheres to or sees knowledge as power uh, to, to dominate and suppress to this more feminist view of uh, think, having a more holistic picture and bringing in somewhere emotions into the picture, right? Western thinking often says, oh, emotions are disruptions. We don't need to think about emotions. Emotions are not good for thinking. But that paper actually argues that you no know, emotions play a huge role in how we think, how we decide what we do. And so rather than dismissing them, we need to have a more holistic view of our decision-making and consider emotions and feelings in our day-to-day -day lives and within all the systems that we're having. So I believe that the other in that, that that's the other sort of uh, perspective to the other and how the other can actually bring about a sort of transformation and change within society. Let me throw another, I, I was trying to figure out how I was going to enter this into the conversation because I wanted to suggest it to you. And this seems like a nice segue. You were saying kind of the other to the other. And now I'm going to confuse it even more by saying to the other, which is, there's a book I read a couple months ago called The Power, which I don't know if you've heard of. It's, it's by a, a woman named, I think her first name is Naomi. Her last name is Alderman. And, and the concept is all of a sudden, young girls and young women start to have this power of electrical current that they can shock someone, that they can kill someone through the power of their energy. And, you know, so in some ways it's, it's, in some ways it's a feminist dystopia. Like it's, it's kind of looking at the world where the women are now in charge, right? Because they've got the power, but what it gets at and what I found most fascinating about her treatment was, and I'm sure you've heard this before, right? This notion that if women were the leaders of the developed countries, there'd never be any war, right? Because women, as you said, they're, they're different. But what Alderman is positing is 
are they different because of their gender? Or are they different because they didn't have power? If they have power, does the power corrupt absolutely in this whole kind of maternal femininity thing? That's not nearly as important. What's important is when you're on a date and someone you know wants to have sex and someone doesn't, whoever is stronger, whoever has more power gets their way. Um, and so what this book explores is, okay, when girls are on dates and the, the guy starts doing something she doesn't want, pssst, like knock it off, they've got the power. So, so how does that affect relationships? How does that affect power structures? How does that, the, the, in, in this novel, how does that affect the way that women behave? Because I would argue by the end of the novel, there's very little maternal kind of caring, empathetic, stereotypical female behavior going on. It is much more, I got the power. And so I'm gonna do what I want. Um, and which is, I, I found really interesting to think about outside the realm of gender and, and our stereotypes of gender. Yeah, that's actually very fascinating, Professor. Thank you for sharing that. Because uh, as you know that you gave us an assignment for this class, what is your personal dystopia? And I was just throwing about random ideas of dystopias that could be, right? So in, yeah. in the class, we read this novel, The Handmaid's Tale, where it has this, had this feminist view on... Um, society and how the female narrative to a dystopia, feminist dystopia, where males are completely dominating and whatnot. And I was wondering, what if it was the opposite? What if it was females in power and extreme power, if we, you know, the, the pendulum, if you were to put it in the spectrum, is on one side of males right now and males being in power. And obviously that's creating disruptions. That is one sort of dystopia. But what if it went complete opposite to the extreme flip side where females are in power and I actually posed this question to a couple of feminist friends of mine and they they did not believe it they're like oh no that's not possible females being in power would never result in uh, all this dystopian uh, uh, you know uh, destruction that would be a utopia and I I had a hard time believing it because I feel like logically speaking or maybe I'm thinking too rationally but the if the balance is disrupted either one side or the other it doesn't matter what gender it is right beyond the gender if you were to think of it in a meta way of yin and yang if we're too much towards the yang that also brings about some sort of dystopia and if we're too much towards the yin that would also bring some sort of dystopia and it's interesting you put that around it because that's not an opinion uh, or, or narrative that we've seen, at least so far in real life in society. It's been predominantly a male-dominated culture that we've been living in. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about this, this uh, novel and how, uh, what, what did the other look like, or the other to the other, where uh, females were in extreme power? What did that sort of dystopia look like? So I don't want to give away too much of it because especially with what you were thinking about with the project, I think you should read it because I think you would find it. I, let me take a step back. I don't think it's great literature. I don't think it's written as well as Handmaid's Tale. I, mean, I don't think Alderman is Atwood, but she does do kind of what we talked about for the project. She kind of thinks about some of the repercussions. And, and so instead of kind of giving you a broader explanation, let me share with you one of the details that I think is emblematic and, and I think you will also find very interesting. One of the points that's made is as men become more suppressed, right, they become men's support groups, right, and defensive men groups, mm -hmm. and they become very belligerent and they're armed. And one point which kind of plays out in the novel, kind of doesn't, is okay, when if men are in power, if men are in charge, from a purely reproductive angle, 
you can't eliminate that many women. Like each woman, right, produces one child every nine months. That, that you know, you can't, you, you've got to have women in order to kind of continue the population. Mm-hmm. If women are in control, that man can father thousands of children. You need much fewer men. So you can kind of do away with 75% of the male population and human population still going to be fine, which I was like, oh, that's interesting, um, right? If, if it becomes a world where women can kind of enforce their own power by being a hyper majority of the population and literally only using men for breeding purposes, you don't need as many handmaids as you did in Gilead, right? You might need 10 for a a state, right? And just kind of keep harvesting their sperm and you just keep impregnating different women and society's fine, which I had never thought about in that way, but I was like, Ooh, that's, that's dark and that's dastardly. And it's true. Um, so that, that was just kind of one of the examples she used. That I was like, Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's extremely fascinating. I mean, these kind of thoughts are not the everyday thoughts, right? These are right. things that have right. not happened. So it just uh, really fascinates me to think about that. Potentially there could be a future uh, thousands, I don't know how many years down the line, but a future that where that could happen, where the tables could turn. And uh, because we already are seeing, right, a lot of feminist movement and uh, that female leaders in countries are doing better. So what if that started to happen where the tables started to turn? Okay, it's like, yeah, men are just, you know, like shitholes, they're ruining the world, which, you know, men are. But uh, if that started to happen, homeostasis came to closer to it but then boom we went on the complete opposite side and uh, uh like male populations got eradicated i'm sure if there's some feminists watching this they they're still gonna question this that oh that's not possible that females can ever be so rude and so um un- inconsiderate and i would agree to them to one extent i think females would have a little bit more of a nurturing approach and more considerate emotional response compared to men where men are just like, oh, yep, I don't care. Just do away with it. But that being said, the notion you brought about of um, anyone in power, regardless of gender, right? We're going towards this more sort of gender fluid society, right? Where females are doing jobs that men used to do um, typically. And, and the way females are starting to think the roles that they're playing is shifting in society. And so what if it was to completely flip around? That That is a wild thought. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I, I completely respect women who say that that's not possible. And that's totally fine. But I'm just saying there are at least woman, one woman who does think it's possible. And that's Naomi Alderman. So, you know, I, I do think that novel is kind of a, a really interesting turn and twist. So that being said, Professor, I want to come to this idea of then utopias, right? Because, okay, if someone was saying that... Um, or I was saying, oh, if we were to consider the others or have this sound of feminist epistemology or more feminist kind of society, that might bring about a utopia in some way. But then as you presented, this book shows that, well, that, that might just flip it around and that might not happen. So in that sense, um, do you actually believe that we can ever be in a utopia or that we have ever been in a utopia? Is utopia even possible and also if you could give some context to the literary context to where the word utopia comes from so now, now you're putting me on the spot to remember my um 
my utopia lecture. Um, my memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that that it it came out of I forget if it was Latin or Greek for no place that that there was some notion of it not being able to be attained. Um, one thing we talked about in class, Joshua, and I'm sure you remember. So, but let me kind of talk about it a little bit. Is, is this notion of of change that that the you know the one constant in in the world in human evolution in existence is change that that as soon as things become static they die or they end or or, or you know something bad happens when when, when change stops happening I, I i would have a hard time saying that utopia has never existed but i would also have a hard time saying it's existed for any extended period of time that, that i there may have been utopian periods that were uh, an instant where where you know in in a certain society where things were were really perfect for and you know maybe it was an hour maybe it was a week maybe it was some brief period of time but but just kind of like any you know use you, you before use the analogy of the car right the, to use it in another sense you know that that car is going to run perfectly for a little while and then the fan base, fan, fan belt's going to break, right? And or then the tire's going to lose air. Like the, there are there are forces which are you know dependent on constant change that are going to what um, provide problems, obstacles, derail things, um, and, and so I guess my my response would be as candidly as I can to say. I don't think it's possible for a sustainable utopia to exist. I, I think there are probably moments of, of, I'm sorry, this sustainable utopia to exist. I think there are probably moments of utopia that have existed in, in smaller settings. Um, and, and maybe the smaller the setting, the longer it can exist. But, but I don't think, I, I just think the change and, and, and the erosion and all of those things are, they're, they're operating again, and it gets to kind of one of the things we talked about the first week of class, that in some ways utopia is this conception of perfection, right? And, and so you can strive toward it and, and you can get close and, and maybe for an instant you achieve it, but, but to kind of stay in that place, um, I think is problematic. That said, you know, you've also raised this notion of, of e-utopia, right? Which, which is, I, I don't think, as I understand the definition, I don't think it is perfection, but, uh, but I think it is this kind of, self-sustainable, recognizing its own flaws, but better than any other system kind of um, arena, which I think is very interesting, thought-provoking, worthy of exploration. Um, and my only concern on a large scale would be, again, and we already talked about this, how do I get those who are above that place to agree to lower their status to be a part of that place? Interesting. So. To, in response to the very last thing that you yeah. I think that can be done if we didn't have the zero the, the zero sum game mindset, right? If obviously, like if someone, regardless of where I am on the, the status um, the, the scale, was to say that, okay, give up what you have, right? Like you lose and someone else wins. I'd say, hell no, I'm not doing that. that, that that's, that's not happening. I want to win, right? There's this whole notion that we're conditioned in society to win, right? To be positive, to grow, right? Um, so obviously, I don't think our human mind would ever want us to, to lose and for someone else to win at our expense. But that being said, if we could create a positive sum game where, yeah, you're on top, wherever you are, doesn't matter, 
you we're not saying you need to lose we're not saying you need to give up what you have but rather uh, that you grow but also the others grow and i believe that can again that sounds quite idealistic I believe that can happen by bringing about a shift more in our economic system. And I'm not an expert on economics, but um, you know, one of the, uh, the other students that we had in our class, Alex Kanade, who's also been on this podcast, talks a lot about this economic change and how we can create a sort of economic system where we can create more win-win situations where people on top don't need to give up their power, but rather, and it's not a completely flat system. It's not extreme equality because equality in extremes can also turn dystopian. That was a, another story I was really fascinated with. Uh, just side tangent to, to mention it. I, I was really interested in the idea of equality and you know justice. And I used to often think about equality and justice as the same. But uh, after reading that text called Harrison Bergeson, I think it was called. Bergeron. Yes, exactly. And how there was extreme equality, right? Like that could also turn dystopian. So I don't believe that we need to create a system that's, uh, you know, that's eradicated capitalism or hierarchies and gone to the extreme, you know, like super com- like communism or, uh, you know, complete flat egalitarian systems. I think there's a middle ground like everything else. I think we can create what I've learned as hierarchies, which are essentially like hierarchies, but they're dynamic, they're fluid. They're not stuck the way hierarchies are stuck in. So there is a hierarchy, but anyone can be on the top at any time. And uh, there's equal opportunity. There's no forced equality that you must be where I am and I'm lower. So you must also be at where in, in the same position and as me and give up what you have, but rather that no, me on the bottom, I have the opportunity to get to the top. And I know that could sound like, oh, the American dream, anyone can be rich, anyone who's willing to work hard can climb to the top. Uh, that was sort of the utopian dream that that the forefathers of America had presented. And like you said, we can, we might never be able to be in that sustained utopia, right? Like permanent utopia. And I don't even know if we should even think about permanent utopia, because if we have all the time feeling good, and no time when we're feeling kind of shitty, then will we ever know the value of good? Will we ever know sort of what good feels like? I'd argue no, at least I wouldn't. When I really have those really shitty moments or like when the electricity went, that's not a shitty moment, when the electricity went goes off, for example, <laughs> I get to know the value of light that, okay, like thank you for there being light. I wouldn't know the value of this if I never saw the other side. And so that's why I think that the other or sort of um, the dark side is also important. Yet, I believe we can sort of create this utopia or or this ever improving system rather than a perfect system that's sustainably or or like perfect all the time. Instead, like it's getting better, yet it will never be perfect. And that's the concept. That's the base of the system where the point is to keep on getting better rather than uh, trying to just be perfect. That's sort of my take on this. No, I like that. And, and, and you know, I think there are some laissez-faire economists who would argue that's what we're doing, that, that if you look at poverty rates, you know, if you look mm-hmm. at, you know, adjusted gross income for families in the United States, it's gradually gone up that, you know, the percentage of people who have cable access in their homes 
that's never gone down. Like that's constantly an uptrend. And, and so doesn't that indicate a certain level of financial security, which, you know, I would argue is not really financial security, but, but at least kind of not living in a ditch and not having shelter and, and not having some of the finer things, which I, you know, I can quibble with, but I can also see that argument. I guess my, my other response to the kind of focus on positive sum gain, Shashwa, which I'd be curious to hear your reaction to is, would there be motivational problems? That, that, that I do think there's something to zero sum gains to winning that motivates people. And, and certainly, ideally, people would see the motivation as I'm helping us all, right? That it's communal motivation that I'm improving all of our situations. And again, maybe this is the cynic in me, but I, but I do think there are a lot of people I know who just, they want to win for themselves or for their very small family or team. Like that's the, and if you tell them, if you're playing a basketball game and you're saying, oh, and the best outcome is we tie, they're going to be like, I'm not playing that game. Forget it. Like, I'm not interested. I want to win. That motivates me. And, and, and I do wonder if, whether that is a part of human nature or if that's been socialized into us, um, do you think that would affect this positive sum focus in that society? That's very interesting. So first I was like, okay, no, I completely disagree with that. But when you sort of gave the basketball example, it, if, if it was that notion that, oh, even I win, even you win, everyone wins, then it's like, oh, that sounds like a really like stupid game. I'm not playing that. <laughs> you know how kids want to be really nice and in schools like, oh, everyone gets uh, participation points and everyone's a winner, that kind of system. And I guess that wouldn't motivate people. But I think that primarily this is, I'm, I'm not a biologist or psychologist or an expert on this. But I, my humble take on this is that I think that is true or we, we desire that because we are conditioned with playing these win-lose games all the time. Because I mean, we never really have been brought up with games where I can win and also you can win. And that could be a whole new game that we both can enjoy rather than uh, this sort of win-lose sort of zero-sum games that we've had. And I think the reason we've had this is because We've not been, I guess, smart enough or technologically advanced enough to be able to create situation where we can have positive sum games. But as times are changing, I think we can actually create them. And so, so one thing to share, the word motivation, I recently found out, uh, I think the word motivation is a combination of two words. One is emotion and one is movement or move, right? And the idea is that some emotion like hits me so hard that I have now this urge to do something about it is to move and take action because of this feeling that I have. And so I believe that motivation can be brought about by other means. I don't think necessarily that me seeing someone else suffer will is the only way to for me to to participate and move and part uh, and do something in a game i think on the flip side we can create situations where i see another person win and i maybe i am in that game helping the other person win even more and that could motivate me even more than it would motivate me to see them go down. And I think we've seen both, right? Like there's narratives where we've seen that people really enjoy killing others or like destroying other people, right? Like TV shows like Westworld or this really dark stuff where I guess you could say the human nature has this need to 
to put others down. But also we've seen really positive things happening where people want to help other people. And I think nature has conditioned us in a way where oxytocin is released every time we help someone. And so I think that could be a source of motivation or some chemical reaction in our body uh, where we do feel something that moves us, right? That motivates us to, to participate in certain games. And, and last thing I want to say, Professor, is that... Um, like you said, things have been improving and there's writers like Steven Pinker who talk a lot about this, that change has been happening and we're in a much better situation. But then other authors that I've been reading like Mihai and Mihai in his book Flo talks about how external situations have become way better, right? Like he gives an example that a king that had uh, uh, a king uh, like in the medieval ages who had certain amenities is now available to a lower class or a middle class man. And yet we are still not happy if we were to think about utopia in a sense of happiness. And I guess a Buddhist take on this is that suffering is the ultimate condition of life and we will suffer. But the idea is to, I guess, at least for me, is to accept that suffering, that chaos that exists, whether in the mind or outside, and be able to create games where we can all flow. And that's what Chikshan Mihai talks about in his book, is that how can we take control of our lives, not by just changing external reality, but um, taking in control of our own consciousness and our own psyche and our psychology and bringing, in, bringing this utopia from within rather than just external conditions. So again, that might seem like a very idealistic take, but that's my humble understanding and, and take on no, it. I, no, and I think it's really interesting. And Shashwat, obviously, you've, you've thought about it a great deal. I, 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 it appeals to me, this idea of, of positive sum. And certainly I've had certain situations, not a lot, but certain situations where I have appreciated either tying or losing. Um, I distinctly remember being in a basketball tournament when I was in my early 20s and we lost a very close game and I was ecstatic afterward because it was just a really well played game. It was just wow. it was a lot of fun to play in. And all my teammates were like, what are you talking about? We lost <laughs> like this sucks. And I was like, really? Like, no, that was what? Um, that said. I also will admit that I played a card game with my father this morning um, and I won and that made me feel good. <laughs> it was, it's a card game that's 90% luck. Like, it's not like it was merit based. Like it was just, I just got lucky. I do think, you know, you were, you were pointing out before, which I think is valid that, you know, sometimes people enjoy winning to watch the other side suffer or watch the other side lose. But I also think there's an oxytocin release to winning, to I'm better, to I was luckier in that instance. And so a positive sum gain is going to have to try to overtake or overcome or conquer that feeling. Because I, I do think that is a very natural feeling to kind of take pleasure in the win and not the tie uh, and not necessarily take pleasure in the other's misfortune. But I won. I, I'm number one. Like that. that there's... <laughs> There's something about that that appeals to us, I think. Yeah, I, but I don't know. Is that our biological condition? Is that our... Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, but I'm sure that... Can I, I also wonder and... and well, Shashwa, the other thing I was going to say is I wonder if there's there are different feelings about that in the East and the West, like, you know, in, in the kind of more individualistic West, is that more of an emphasis, 
you know, in the East, I know that I know in some sports in the East, it is much more about the team and less about individual accomplishment. Right. That said, my understanding is the team still wants to win. Like the, the team's not okay with tying the other team. they just don't care about themselves individually as long as as a community we succeed. Interesting. So one last concept like or that comes up for me is on one hand, we could think of individualism as like this very competitive nature or on the so Western and then on the Eastern, like sort of communion as a collaborative nature. But I think, again, kind of if we were to think about on that on a spectrum, I don't think we can go either or I think if we could create a system that's competitively collaborative then something would transform. And I, I was watching this talk a long time back, and I believe that that's how nature actually works. And uh, it gave a couple of examples. So for example, on a very like practical sports team level, um, it gave the example of a rowing team where one rowing team is competing against another rowing team. And then within one rowing team, all the rowers on that one boat are collaborating with each other, cooperating with each other to make sure they win against someone else. But at the same time, all these all on this one same boat, they are competing against each other to get onto that boat. Because maybe there's uh, 50 people who, who want to be on that boat, but only 10 can get in. So all these teammates, all these collaborators, all these cooperators have to cooperate, uh, co compete and cooperate with each other at the same time. And it, I can't remember the exact analogy it gave, but it said that that's how our cells also work. That's how our biology also work, where, where we need to kind of compete with other uh, cells or, or other species within our biology, but also collaborate and, and kind of become into the same boat at the same time. Um, and so I, uh, this kind of theme has been appearing and it's a theme that came about in our class that I think about a lot of this utopia on one side and dystopia on the other. And my answer is always kind of the balance. It's both at the same time rather than utopia or dystopia, right? Or, or actually I would say utopia or dystopia and the balance is sort of no place or every place in paradox so that brings me to my last question professor that we like to ask all our guests which is what is your utopia what would your utopia look like if you could design one whether that's today whether that's a day in the future um, as idealistic or pessimistic as you'd like it to be and what would you look like specifically in that YouTube? <laughs> Ooh, that's that added a little wrinkle. Because um, that's interesting. As you were asking it, I was kind of, and, and maybe this is the human condition. I was immediately going into the dichotomy of, am I thinking of a utopian society or am I thinking of utopia for me? Because utopia for me, which is not my answer, but utopia for me would be basically being in the place I am now, which is my favorite place to be on a lake in Maine with my family and friends and people I love, being able to be productive in what I do, being able to write, being able to teach when I want to teach. Um, and, you know, just kind of maximizing my life, which is, again, as you said, kind of idealistic, whatever, but... I, I get a lot of that already. So I, I can't really complain about my life individually. Societally, you know, kind of going back to one of your first questions, I, I think my utopia would have as a basis as much as possible, um, these concepts of justice and meritocracy, that, that this kind of, maybe I should say empathetic meritocracy. I think one of the 
the words that I hear bandied about, bandied about a lot in American political thought in the last year or two is this concept of socialism, which I don't think many Americans are Marxist. Like I, I you know, I don't think many Americans want to kind of have a state-controlled economy. I think most of us believe in laissez-faire economics and believe in competition of the marketplace and all those concepts. But I think to believe in those to the exclusion of not providing a safety net or you only eat what you kill and, and we don't have any obligation to those who are less fortunate, whether that is because of mental disability or physical disability or background or wealth or in, whatever it is. Um, I don't think that's socialism. I, I think that's kind of empathetic capitalism. Um, and, and maybe that's that's kind of where my most ideal society would be, one in which people are still motivated to innovate and create and, and assist and make the world a better place, but are also conscious of their own privilege and set aside a portion of that to provide for those who don't have all of those benefits and privileges. Um, and and I have a really hard time defining that as I get offended when I hear that type of thought being defined as socialism, because I, I think it's, mm. I just think it's flat wrong. I, I did, and and the, the example I always bring up is, okay, so you don't like social security? Like everybody loves social security. That's socialism. Like, okay, you don't like socialism as a broad overall economic policy. I'm with you. But to say that you don't like socialism in any form, unless you don't like social security, then you're lying to me because that's socialism. And, and so, you know, this kind of denigration of the term or this kind of capitalism without empathy, I think is very dangerous and frightening and, and frankly, a world I don't really want to live in. And, and so to kind of more completely answer your question, I guess I would say um, a, a just merit, meritocratic, um, empathetic capitalist society. That's very interesting, Professor. I really, really like that. And I'd just like to add that I think we get stuck in these ideological words that, oh, social, I'm not socialist, right? Like I'm capitalist. What does that really mean? I mean, are you saying you're not social? I don't think that's possible. <laughs> you do have friends, you do love people, you do have a wife, you do have kids. So what do you mean you're not social? I mean, yes, like we create the... So that's why I think there's a problem with a lot of like concepts we create politically and ideologically and get stuck to them that, oh, this is what I am and this is what I'm not. And we fail to recognize the other side that you brought about that. Okay, we need to see the other, what that really means rather than being stuck to our own sort of silo and this is what I am and this is what I'm not. So I really like that idea of empathetic capitalism because it has this sort of balance. It's taking into consideration both sides because we are empathetic beings at the end of the day. We do make progress only when we cooperate and we can only cooperate when we empathize, when we uh, you know, have some emotion or we socialize with others. You individually, we can never do as much as we would have been able to do together. So this idea of to bringing about empathy within capitalism I, I absolutely love it. So thank you for sharing that. No, uh, no, Shashwa. And, and then the other thing I'd add, which just because you were talking about these kind of black whites and these things we identify, you know, we, and we talked about this in class, I know. And part of the reason we do that is it's a complex world, right? And we're trying to make sense of it, right? And and so it makes it easier when you categorize, even though sometimes that results in stereotyping that is harmful and damaging and all those types of things. I, I would also hope that my utopia had an appreciation for the gray, that, that, that rather than focusing on the black and the white, you know, what is, what is this kind of kind of area? 
idea because as you've said it's it's not just balance i don't think i think it's more than that i think it's this notion that nothing is perfect and i can choose this but there are positives and negatives to that it's not purely positive it's not purely negative appreciating that that kind of multifaceted aspect of any concept or idea or whatever it is and you, know, you could, we talked about this in class too one of the fascinating things about the projects to me is those students who took these kind of nominally positive ideas or concepts and turn them dystopian like you can think the, you, the most positive thing you can think of right love you can make that dystopian right you can love someone too much you can love in a damaging way like there are ways in which it can be perverted and and so that that gray i think is is fundamentally important to our conversations our dialogue our societies in terms of understanding each other and and making things better yeah, this has been an extremely uh, fruitful conversation and I love being in those gray spaces or what I'd like to call liminal spaces of metamorphosis where change happens, where we're on the edge. We're not just human beings that are static, but we're human becomings. We're, we're on to something and being on to something I feel like is being alive and not being on to anything is sort of being dead. So thank you for this very refreshing conversation and for sharing all these wonderful thoughts and um, questions and, and ideas with um, me and with whoever may be listening. Um, Shashwa, thank you for inviting me. It was great to, great to see you, great to talk with you. Yes, thank you so much, Professor.